Despite the 7,000 words in this incident report, I don't see much information about what on-call handoffs look like. Surely no one was on call the entire time. And I also don't see what the impact was on morale at the company. Most of this, even though it's quite long and detailed in certain ways, feels like an apology tour for the customers. Basically, the technical bits of this are the least interesting bits. And I think it's process and communication that really matter here. Hi, my name's Nora, his name is Niall, and together we are Getting getting there. There. This is an irregular podcast where we discuss incident management, safety science, reliability engineering, and operations in the headlines and beyond. We are quite literally figuring this stuff out. We are getting there, implying we're not quite there yet. Instead, we're on a journey exploring this stuff together. Getting There is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Hi, welcome to the podcast. This session, we are going to talk about the Atlassian outage of April 2022. This outage is an extremely interesting outage from both my and Nora's point of view, but we'll get into the nuances of that very shortly. At the start, I just want to give you the general background to the outage and what actually happened. At Glassian on Tuesday, April 5th, 2022, starting at 7.38 UTC, had an outage that had a lot of customers and potentially many, many seats behind those customers. Part of the difficulty is interpreting what Atlassian thinks a, a customer is in the context of this outage report, which is, again, a topic we'll get into. But this outage started on April the 5th and actually lasted for 14 days, which I think is actually a record for outages we have looked at on the podcast so far. So it's these 775 customers who lose access to their, their products, their data, etc. can't do anything with them, but they have res- restoration of their service at uh, starting on April 8th, and then everyone's restored by April 18th or thereabouts. So there's a 10-day spread during which customers are being slowly restored. The curious thing here is that this is, you know, we'll have a lot to say about the conduct of the incident and similar, but one of the most interesting things about this is it's actually problems on the Atlassian end with respect to restoration of data, coordination and communication, which are the overwhelming themes that come through on reading this report. And as I say, we'll get into a lot more detail on that in a moment. But Nora, why don't you tell us for those who don't know already, what Atlassian is, what they do, and a little bit about their history. Thanks, Niall. So Atlassian was founded about 20 years ago in 2002 in Sydney, Australia. They have a really impressively scrappy history. They actually bootstrapped the company for several years with $10,000 of credit card debt from the founders, and they made it work from there. Their flagship product is called Jira. Uh, It's something that is pretty pervasive throughout the software industry, and it's been pervasive beyond the software industry as well. It's an issue tracking and project management system. Uh, Jira market share is somewhere around 50%. What's interesting, and we'll get into why this pertains to this outage later, is 
There's no sales team for Atlassian or traditional support structure. So their customer support team from the beginning has been a bit atypical from what we normally see in the software industry. They have had pretty public incidents in the past uh, and publicity from public events tends to lead to emotional distress and lands to uh, change feature development. And there's a number of references and credit around that. But beyond that, they've also drawn a lot of attention to themselves via acquisitions of various companies. Um, They've had 19 acquisitions total, and 10 of those have been actually acquired in the last five years. And as we all know, you know, when you integrate another company into your company, for a while, you're effectively managing two different businesses, even though you're selling two different things, you start integrating the software as you try to add more features and complexity becomes pretty overwhelming. Um, And so as you're adding on more companies and acquiring more companies, your legacy software also increases. Um, I think Niall will take us in a sec to what happened around the legacy software and such. Yeah, I I will just touch on something you said there and say I admire Atlassian and what they've managed to achieve. And a lot of the professed company values are things that deeply resonate with me, but I'm I'm challenged by what I see in the post-incident report and how it actually resonates with those those values. So I I think there's possibly a lot to discuss there. But anyway, let's talk a little bit about the incident itself. So we have a massive outage. Customer data gets deleted. It turns out that this is a classic example of the cultural value of the Unix API or POSIX API, perhaps is the slightly better way to say it. When you tell the machine RM minus RF slash, the machine assumes you mean it and it will go and delete everything. There are other APIs that don't work quite that way, but the Unix or POSIX API definitely does. So in this particular case, the background to the outage is there's a plugin because Jira and the general Atlassian ecosystem is certainly large enough to support a marketplace or kind of plugin style economic setup. So they have a plugin, it's being retired. They need to go and delete the plugin from its installation on a bunch of customer sites. One thing the post-incident report, the public post-incident report does do quite well is it talks a lot about the architecture, how things are laid out in the Atlassian world and and the, the kind of technical infrastructure they have surrounding that. But broadly speaking, as you might expect, it is possible to delete things. It is possible to delete plugins. It is possible to delete customer data. These things are referenced by IDs. So there's a script that they have They need to delete this plugin from a bunch of customers. So they run around and figure out what customers uh, that applies to. They get a list of IDs. Now, unfortunately, as they say in the outage report, the list of IDs, which for completely safe deletion should only reference the plugins that are to be deleted, Instead, that list of IDs ends up being the actual customer site rather than the plugin within the site. So there's some idea of container object, right? There's some idea of hierarchical data storage or customer attribute storage or equivalent. But the 
basic deal is here where they should say, please delete object X inside customer Y, you actually get out the number, which is the customer site in its entirety. And so second kind of technical trigger of the outage, when they pass this list of IDs to the script that does, or the system that does the deletion, the system believes them. It says, okay, you want to delete all these customers? Sure thing, I'll go ahead and do that. And it does that. And as a result, from April 5th, a large number of customers, again, with some question mark around precisely how many affected kind of human beings or how many systems are sitting behind that number, but 775 customers lose access to their products. Now, in a perfect world, you could just hit pause on everything, crank up your restore script, feed in the same list of IDs to this system and just have everything restored. Unfortunately, this world varies from a perfect world in a large number of ways. And one of those ways is that actually they don't have a good process or automation or whatever to do this. And the report is, it's a little ambiguous as to why this is, in my opinion, but broadly speaking, one crucial fact seems to be that when you actually delete the customer site, you also delete a bunch of customer IDs, like reference numbers that are used to capture and describe the customer and the plugins they have access to and the path names that you find their data on and so on and so forth. So when you nuke the customer IDs, you have a lot of downstream effects from that, one of which is it is actually, according to my reading of the report anyway, it's difficult to restore the data for a customer who no longer has an ID on the system. Not only that, which we'll explore in more detail in a moment, but it turns out it's very hard to allow a customer to report an issue if they can no longer refer to their ID because it has been deleted. And this underpins some of the communication issues they have later on. But they very quickly, to their credit, realized that stuff's going down and is bad and so on. So they, they quickly realized this and Atlassian support, I think, acknowledges the incident by about half eight UTC. And then there is a what is an unfortunately large gap to my way of thinking where it's only April 7th at 0056 UTC when they actually uh, have their first broad external message acknowledging the incident. But anyway, coming back to the things that they, they did well, they realized there was an issue fairly quickly on. They spun up a cross-functional team in order to uh, attack this issue. Uh, and then they work on a, a huge process of restoration with what seems like from the outside to be some kind of ad hoc process, some kind of automation. And they spend days and days restoring customer data uh, in fact, they reference on the report that there's something like 70 individual steps in the first restoration process that they did. Again, harking back to the fact that when you no longer have a customer ID, it's hard to actually restore that. 
data, uh, but the process includes things like creating a new site, new licenses, new ID, activating the right products, migrating the site to the correct region because they do offer data residency, which is to say, if you want your data in the right kind of geographical region or legal jurisdiction or whatever, you can you can configure that and you can't just restore anywhere, obviously. And then a lot of internal stuff about metadata, identity data, product databases, media associations like the things that attachments are processed by, feature flags, so all of this kind of stuff. So the Restoration One approach ends up being used for about 53% of impacted users. They say users rather than customers. So again, there's some uh, question mark around that, I think. And that restores like 112 sites out of the 775 or thereabouts. And then Restoration Two, which takes substantially shorter amount of time. Restoration two basically involves them realizing, oh, actually we don't have to make new identifiers. We could reuse the old ones. And they don't talk precisely about the implications or the complexities of this, but it seems to involve undeleting some records associated with the site. So maybe there are some database rows they can restore or uh, there's some recreation which can take place via identifiers they can find elsewhere. Anyway, they get to reuse the old site identifiers and that removes like 35 or 40 of the 70 steps in the previous process so they can go much faster in the technical restoration. But actually there's a lot of overhead that ends up happening in the incident response because the scripts have to be rewritten, the teams have to manage a much faster process, which in itself increases the communication overhead. There's parallel batches of restorations and so on and so forth. And they have a lot of testing and validation, which makes, uh, makes for a lot of work, shall we say. So that is the, the technical background. And I think they declare the incident over in or around April the 18th, yes. So it's the final four days that are spent in Restoration 4. One thing I'm curious about is, you know, given the length of the outage, which, as you mentioned, it was a fairly long outage, despite the 7,000 words in this incident report, I don't see much information about what on-call handoffs look like. Surely no one was on call the entire time. And I also don't see what the impact was on morale at the company, how they're recovering some of that. It seems most of this, even though it's quite long and detailed in certain ways, feels like an apology tour for the customers, which is fine. And, you know, I think customers deserved that. I think, you know, obviously there were some complaints about it on social media and elsewhere, various Slack communities I participated in. And, you know, there's a lot of emotional toll this takes uh, on your organization as well. And that might not feel relevant to bring up in a public post-incident review, but it actually is, and it, it can be handled in a nuanced way. It, it does improve customer trust um, if you're understanding how teams coordinated together, if you're understanding how employees coordinated together, because they also, at the very beginning of this post-incident report, bring up communication gaps as an issue. And I'm sure those communication gaps percolated 
in the incident as well. You know, we tend to replicate our organization when we're in incidents and when something is bleeding, all rules and procedures kind of go out the window and you're just trying to stop the bleeding as fast as possible, which kind of provides a reflection point into how your organization actually works when it's outside of an incident as well. And right under that, you know, we see communication gap and we also see insufficient system warnings. Both of these were a little bit disappointing for me to read because that is normative language. And I know this was something that was shared, being shared with customers, but it's a very shallow analysis. And when you take normative language like that, it kind of stops the incident review in general. It's uh, like saying things like insufficient or gap or misbehavior. It's kind of judging what happened rather than sounding curious. And if you sound curious, your customers will mimic that tone as well. And that goes for, you know, judging poor behavior and judging good behavior. And so the norms on which this is built is defined in hindsight. Like, yes, it was insufficient in hindsight. And yes, there was a communication gap in hindsight, but there was a norm before that that wasn't thought of like that. Otherwise, the accident wouldn't have happened. And so I wish that that detail had been explained a little bit more and that normative language had been avoided at the beginning too, because things like this also affect how people read things internally. And although it's kind of a marketing tactic and it's a PR and it's an apology thing, especially since it was written by the CTO at the time, it still impacts how employees view it too. And I'm sure uh, it impacted how people spoke about the incident internally and how people felt about it, which impacts their future incidents as well. Yes, I have to say, I have a, a large amount of sympathy for Atlassian in this, in, under a, a set of narrow categories, shall we say. First of all, the folks who are working around the clock in order to restore the data, the folks who are improvising, everyone who's, who's basically trying to move stuff along and, and do the right thing for the customers. And I also have sympathy for them in in this narrow category as well, Jira has a very large amount of market share, very well known in the industry, etc. That's not necessarily because people love bug tracking products in general or Jira in particular, but any organization that has a product that has that kind of wide adoption is going to come in for a lot of criticism. And it came in for a lot of criticism. So I have a lot of sympathy there. But I think I, in turn, would have a number of pretty big questions to ask about the report as it is written, the mindset it reveals, and some of the things kind of behind the scenes. So I'll give you a couple examples. Coming back to this, this question of empathy and so on, uh, there's this quote in the report, at Atlassian, one of our core values is, quotes, open company, no bullshit, end quotes. But that is literally followed by a paragraph saying, quote, although this was a major incident, no customer lost more than five minutes of data. In addition, over 99.6% of our customers and users continue to use our cloud products fine, end quote. Now, the difficulty with this, of course, is no customer lost more than five minutes of data. That's cool, you know, good. Uh, of course, five minutes of data could be a fairly large amount of data, depending on how much you use Jira. And also, if 
it is 14 days between when you lose access to that data and you get it again, it doesn't really matter that you only lost five minutes. It is actually a pretty severe difficulty. And additionally, the bit where they go over 99.6% of our customers continue to use the cloud products just fine or equivalent. Is that the 99.6% of customers that you still had after you deleted the rest? Or is it the other 99.6%? Like there's some huge question marks about the defensiveness there. Nora. Yeah, and Eric Dobbs, who's an engineer at Indeed, actually wrote up a pretty interesting article called A Better Apology for Atlassian, where he talks about the open company, no bullshit thing that you, you mentioned as well. And, you know, he says... While this is factually true, it ignores the elephant in the room, two weeks outage. All 200,000 of us customers saw it and are now faced with contingency plans. What if the worst case happened to us two weeks without the runbooks in our wiki, without the acceptance criteria and all of our software tickets, without the hooks into our own incident management process and follow-ups, and without the hiring process documentation? And I want to go back to what I was talking about earlier with the acquisitions and the amount of teams they're acquiring and the amount of complexity that adds to their communication and social structures as well, which obviously impacts incidents and impacts how teams coordinate. Uh, It's increasing the cost of coordination. And so while they might actually believe they have an open company, no bullshit culture, that doesn't just happen automatically. It needs to be actively practiced. And I don't hear in here how it is actively practiced beyond that statement. And so I'm sure there are ways that they practice it, but that is a a whole system to maintain on its own beyond just a software system. Indeed. And they also have a don't F the customer value, which you could argue the whole outage, the conduct of the outage, the treatment of the customer and so on and so forth (laughs) would undermine somewhat. Right. But I think there's another Another set of concerns uh, to highlight here around how Atlassian coordinate internally. So if I read the report correctly, they're relatively good about starting out realizing that bad things are happening and they need to pull together loads of people and so on. In fact, I think they, they talk publicly about some of their incident management kind of process. But they have this other sentence in the report. And Nora, it says, quote, because this had to be done within our production system, it took several days to fully develop, test and deploy, end quote. Mm -hmm. Several days. Right. I mean, if you had done it sooner outside of the production system, that could have been better. So... I also thought it was interesting, you know, it gets brought up in the beginning of the report that, you know, there was engineering teams using an existing script and process to delete instances of a standalone application. The script was executed following our standard peer review process, uh, contained IDs for particular customers. They basically, and they say in here verbatim that it was due to a faulty script, but I'm I I become like a lot more curious there. Like I want the history of the script. I want to know why it was originally created. I want to know which team originally created it. I want to know how people were involved in understanding it together. Like that is stuff that I think is the meat of this rather than some of the the technical uh, portions it describes here. Yes, there's a huge piece around that, I think. And it's possible to read into that 
I think the kind of underinvestment in unlikely operational scenarios that you often see in organizations that are, for example, trying to control cost or control scope in some sense. This will never happen, therefore we won't invest in it, is a fairly common theme, you'll understand, of course. Right. I think another piece which is interesting to investigate is question of why they didn't respond publicly sooner. Because remember, there's this two days-ish kind of public absence of communication. And part of it is, of course, the fact that having erased the customer IDs, you then don't know where they are. Or maybe your, your backups reference old contacts. They talk a lot about some of those contacts being old when they try and explicitly reach out to the customers. But they say we prioritize communicating directly with affected customers, you know, implicitly rather than broadcast. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge piece around why you would try and communicate individually with customers rather than broadcast when you've realized it's 775 customers with potentially many seats behind that. But uh, having lost the contact information, okay, fine. Here's the real emotional nub of it. They say, while we immediately knew what had caused the incident, the architectural complexity and the unique circumstances slowed down our ability to scope it. And rather than wait until we had a full picture, we should have been transparent about what we knew and what we didn't know. And I think that's the key realization there. I see them as being kind of fundamentally oh, God, we really have to know what we're talking about before we say something. But actually, is that right? Yeah. And I, you know, I I see that they did, you know, directly say in here why we didn't publicly respond sooner. And they say, you know, we should have implemented broader communications much earlier. But there's also this big complication and meta component to this in that Atlassian brands themselves as a company that sells incident tools and incident management tools, and they write their own guides on how to do it. And so there is a lot of pressure on the people responding because even though they have this expertise on incidents and sell tools that other companies use in order to handle their own incidents, they're not immune towards having them themselves. And so I think they actually have a much higher responsibility to be very vulnerable in these situations than other companies because of the tools they sell. And so this trust gets broken a lot uh, greater than I think, you know, outages with other SaaS providers that you use because of how they tout themselves publicly. And like you mentioned, the open company, no bullshit thing. And so there is clearly an investment in marketing some of these things and selling some of these products, but there's not so much of an investment as training their own people, training their own people on response, on coordination, on doing incident reviews, on participating in incident reviews. I I like that there was some responsibility taken from senior leadership for this. And I wish they had included the engineers in participating in this incident review. I think that would have gone a really long way because the engineers are the ones maintaining the systems day in and day out. They're the ones that know the pressures they're under and the trade-offs that they're making that lead to some of these incidents. And so I think that would have actually escalated the trust from this document even, even more. Yes, again, coming back to the operational starvation piece I was talking about earlier, it's possible to read into this 
large outage, consistent underinvestment, and in particular, consistent underinvestment by Atlassian in the capability of its staff and training in their own incident management process, or maybe the incident management process as defined is not suitable for one of these kinds of incidents, which is another possibility, of course. But I wanted to, to touch on the actual recommendations of the report or the the actions they're they're going to do, mm-hmm. which to my mind, well, I'll I'll I'll, I'll talk about them and, and then I'll I'll tell you my opinion. But first of all, they have uh, learning one or lesson one: soft deletes and code should be universal across all systems. Number two, as part of the DOR disaster recovery program, we need to automate restoration for multi-site and multi-product uh, deletion events for you know, a large number of customers. Number three, improve the incident management process for large-scale uh, events, sorry. And lesson four is improve our communications processes, all of which are kind of worthy things to do. But actually, I would put them in exactly the reverse order. And the reason, for, like there's a couple of reasons for that, but the, the first one I'd say is soft deletes being universal across all systems. Actually, like you probably don't get to do that as coherently as you think you do because the notion of deletion is so widely spread throughout all of the layers of various stacks. Like I don't think you can achieve soft deletes being universal. And also, it's also probably the wrong design in some of these circumstances. Like you want hard delete in some circumstances. But Anyway, I, I think they're kind of overfitting or overfixating on the fact that this issue happened in this particular context. And of course, it's important to tidy up. And of course, you go to all of the scripts and go, do I interpret these IDs as potentially being a site one or, you know, pulling in a lot of data? If so, then flag or put up an error or reach out to a human or something like that's totally fine but it's actually not what's going to hit you necessarily if there's some other issue in Atlassian, the thing they need to fix is their communications process, first of all, and the incident management process. I mean, they're very close in priority in my mind. They have to get better at conducting this and they have to get better at telling their customers what's going on and telling themselves what's going on. It's not clear from the report how good they are at doing that, I suppose. But the the restoration program and the soft deletes, basically the technical bits of this are the least interesting bits. And I think it's process and communication that really matter here. Well, we're running out of, of time here, but I do just want to add that a lot of the times in organizations as big as Atlassian's, and especially when we see senior leadership completing one of these post-incident reviews, there are a lot of coordination issues internally in these companies, uh, not only between teams, but between uh, individual contributors and leadership. And I have a hunch that this issue was known by a lot of individual contributors and perhaps even brought up to leadership. I mean, it's alluded to in this document as well. And I'm curious how one senior leadership responds to these reliability issues or claims before they happen. And two, how individual contributors are able to give evidence to some of those claims and the likelihood behind some of them and the potential blast radius of some of them. 
especially like as we were talking about earlier, as they're adding all these employees and adding all these companies, that becomes harder and also more important to do. Uh, And the potential blast radius of these outages becomes much greater over time. Any other wrap-up items before we we sign off, Niall? I think the two other things to mention just off the top of my mind, uh, you don't have to believe what we say. You can look at what a large number of other people have said. There's not just the Eric uh, Dobbs thing, of course, but also I want to particularly call out Gergay Aras's uh, the Pragmatic Programmer newsletter. He's very active on Twitter as well. He did a huge piece on this in, in some detail. There's some claim, I think, that Atlassian actually showed a preliminary version of the post-insert report to him. His big question, apart from the communication piece, of course, is that 775 customers, how many actual people does that resolve to? And he has some some guesses in his work there. But again, I suppose they're guesses. Anyway, he, he has a very interesting, detailed uh, treatment of this, and I, I would seriously recommend it. The other piece I wanted to mention is coming back to what you said about senior leadership getting involved and accountability and so on. Of course, the CTO of Atlassian is no longer with the company. And again, it's relatively easy to read all kinds of potential motivations or situations into that. But it is, in some sense, a loss for the company and a loss of knowledge and and so on and so forth. But hopefully the company can do better and get better because we're all getting better in the future. And just to add, legacy software will never... (laughs) Stop being a thing. One thing we used to, when I worked at Netflix, we, we also always used the Roman writing metaphor where the new software isn't quite ready and the legacy software is still used. And so you're using both at the same time, which inherently becomes its own new system to understand. And it seemed like they were kind of trying to rush through this process a little bit. And there's complications and pros and cons to both. But as software companies in this really fast-paced moving industry, we have to get really good at deprecating software and that changes and uh, the norms around that change in every company. But all right, thanks so much, Niall, and we will see you folks next time. Okay, folks, that's all we have time for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts today and follow us on Twitter at getting there underscore capital G capital T. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. 